Welcome to your go-to Detroit Pistons podcast, The Pistons Pulse, co-hosted by me, Bryce Simon of Motor City Hoops and Detroit Bad Boys, a former D1 Hooper and high school coach, current teacher, husband, and father of three amazing kids. And I'm Omari Sanko for the second Pistons beat writer for Detroit Free Press. All right, Omari, we're just going to get this out of the way because we were talking about it beforehand. If you guys are watching <laughs> on YouTube right now or you want, I've been thinking this for a minute. Me and Omari have known each other for a minute. I finally got up the gumptions. I think Omari looks like Andrew Wiggins. I just do. <laughs> he came with the new hairdo today, and I just today was the day I was finally going to bring it up. It, it, it's a compliment, man. Like Andrew Wiggins, is a good-looking dude. So, um, and obviously a big-time basketball player. So I finally brought it up today. I had to start the episode with that. Yeah, it's funny. I've, uh, I mean, even when I was in college, like a sophomore in college, uh, Wiggins was you know, being called uh, Maple Jordan and all this other stuff. People used to say, "Mario, have you ever been told you look like Andrew Wiggins?" And it's like I get, I get this seven times a week. Like this is not, this is not new information. I hadn't gotten it in a while. I thought I'd, I'd actually like finally shed that comparison, and apparently I have not. So I would like. I guess there are worse NBA players to say you look like. So I'll just, I'll just accept it and take it and I am rocking the long hair right now uh, just letting let my hair breathe out from the braids for a few weeks so I'll just own it it's okay Bryce I'll forgive you we are always joined by our guy Wes and Wes I know you can't talk right now but I think it's like these are going to be so much fun to do the sheet or sham with these live audiences when we do those because then the audience will be able to play along with us and stuff so that's something that will come down the road when we kind of get into the off season but I, I kind of got yeah. excited thinking about that the other day so yeah also happy Father's Day Bryce oh, happy Father's Day appreciate it man yeah it was a good one I don't know if you guys follow me on Twitter or not I watched a bunch of film and then I mowed the lawn and the little man was behind me with his little fake mower so um, that's the relaxing time for me is is mowing the lawn we do have one new review on Apple this is from Maze and Blue he said my go-to Pistons podcast with a bunch of exclamation points and then just super simple with this one Amari five stars he put in the comments so not the super in-depth you know paragraph ones we love we love all of the comments all of the reviews you guys are killing it on Spotify we're up over like 225 reviews on Spotify just reminder, you guys can help us out and grow if you leave reviews and ratings on Apple, Spotify, and then, of course, here on YouTube now, if you watch here, just subscribe, all of that stuff, like and share. So we appreciate all of you. Thanks, Shad. Happy Father's Day. I appreciate it. Um, let's get into this, Omari. We are going to talk NBA draft. We will get into plenty of it, but Omari and I haven't got a chance to talk a lot of Monty Williams stuff yet. So Omari, I'll let you go first. You were there, obviously, in person for the Monty Williams press conference. What were some of your big takeaways? And then we'll kind of talk about the staff as it's starting to round out. Yeah, I mean, it was just typical press conference. Nothing really uh, breaking newsworthy, but uh, the entire team was there with the exception of Boyan Bogdanovic and I believe Corey Joseph. So, uh, Monty talked a lot about just being touched by seeing all the players show up. Uh, that's, I've been doing this five years. That's only the second. Uh, introductory head coach press conference I've been to because uh, the Grizzlies hired Taylor Jenkins back in 2019 and hadn't been too many but you know it was just cool to just kind of see the energy in the room all the people who came out media uh, a lot of people just from the, the team behind the scenes and whatnot you know, it was just a, a, a two-month process too so I guess personally it was nice to just see Monty in the flesh and talk to people in person and it's like okay cool it's just finally over and I don't have to answer six questions a day about what the press conference is and this and that because you know, I notice when information is lacking, people begin to get antsy. You know, I don't know why. Sometimes no news is just no news. But uh, I mean, as far as, as Monty came in, he just kind of gave the, the lay of the land what he wants to do. Uh, I mean, everything you you heard about him, just being the good guy that he is and uh, the leader of men uh, that that he is, you kind of got a feel for during the press conference. And you know, also a lot of the staff was there. I was able to confirm staff. After the fact, you know, which we'll, we'll, we'll talk about. And I know there's been a lot of excitement from people uh, just knowing who's on that staff and what they can bring, uh, which is also interesting to me because I, did, I didn't know people really cared about uh, who's on the bench to the extent that they do. But like that kind of blew up and I tweeted that out. So, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, a lot to, to talk about. But the press conference itself for me was just cool. Nazi's here. Uh, now we can move on to the draft and free agency and get to the, the other big stuff that's going to define the Pistons next season. Real quick, Amari, just to people's minds at ease. I text you about this, and I know this was something Wes actually brought up. I know you may not be able to like confirm or anything, but 
I, I know I text you about, you know, why wasn't boy on there? And you said, you know, there's a real chance he's probably just over in Europe right now. Like, do you have any, cause I know this is, I know this is something that fans really wanted. Like you said, like everybody's there, but boy on and Kojo. And I know a lot of Pistons fans will want boy on to still be on this roster next year. So do you have any uh, Intel at all inside at all into where boy on might've, I mean, I don't know where he was, but I would assume he was in Europe. I mean, he lives in Europe. He's from Europe and you know, his family over there and, you know, it's the off season. Uh, you know, it's tough to you know probably come back on short notice. Uh, probably from the Detroit standpoint, I mean, just having the young guys there. Uh, you know, the players who will really define uh, the outcome of this rebuild. You know, not that Boyan won't be a factor over the next two years, but you know, just the guys who are in that twenty through you know twenty five range or whatever. Uh, you know, I, I, I think seeing them there was the main gesture. So I wouldn't read into Boyan not being there or anything. I would just assume he was in Europe, enjoying some time with the family and. Uh, it's probably easier to fly in from wherever the players were in the States than for Boyan to fly halfway across the world to <laughs> come in there for the press conference. So Let's talk about the assistants. So Steven Silas, sounds like he's going to help with the offense. Dan Burke, Ahmed Omari, he's probably the one I'm most excited about as the defensive guy. Mark Bryant is coming with Monty Williams from Phoenix. Jarrett Jack, same thing. A few other names. Were there any names that either surprised you, stood out to you? You know, I, I'm with you. Like I was surprised fans were as excited about the assistant coaches as what they were. And I saw some people talking about like, I think it's a testament to the fan base and NBA fans understanding how important these guys can play a role in the success of the team, that it's not just the head coach that's doing everything that assistant coaches are out there running the defense, running the offense, running workouts and those type of things. So I was kind of excited about that. I know Burke is the name that excited me the most was there one that I don't want to say excited you. Cause I know you're not a fan, but just kind of stood out uh, amongst all of the names that were, would be joining Monty Williams. I mean, we talked a little bit a few weeks ago about who a staff could look like, and I figured he would bring a lot of people in from Phoenix. Um, you know, I got a lot of questions from people, what's going to happen with Rex Kalamian and Jerome Allen and, and, and those guys. And, like, they're great guys, just standard for the NBA, for coaches to bring their own teams in. It's nothing personal to them. It's just, you know, coaches bring their own staffs in, and that's just how it always worked. Dwayne brought his own staff in when he came in and actually refreshed the staff a couple of years ago. Uh, it's pretty common for assistant coaches to, uh, you know, leave. So I would also encourage people to not get too attached to the coaches, <laughs> the assistant coaches on the, on the roster now because it's, you know, it's common for, for people to come and go and that's just kind of how it goes. Uh, like, I think I think Jared Jack is a really fun addition. I mean, we all watched him play for, you know, years and years. And, uh, he's really not that far removed from being a player. He's with the G League Ignite a couple of years ago. But, uh, you know, we have a team with Kate Cunningham and, uh, you know, Jaden Ivey. And it's always good to just have to be a veteran point guard, you know, in a position where you're going to be working on player development. And uh, one thing Monty said when I was talking to him is all, everybody he added uh, can get their hands involved in player development. Now, he seemed really excited about Steve, Steve Scalzi, who was with him in uh, Phoenix. Uh, he'll be doing a lot of player development stuff. Uh, you know, so we'll just see. You know, I think it is, you know, one thing about talking about coaching is, like, we talk about on the pod a lot, like, you don't see everything that goes on, like, you see bits and pieces and, you do see a lot of the skill work that kind of happens uh, after practices and whatnot. But, uh, you know, we'll just have to wait and see for me. You know, I don't necessarily want to speculate on what, you know, coaches will and, and, and won't bring or anything to that extent. But I will say about Dan Burke, too, uh, everywhere he's been, his teams have tended to be above average defensively. And, uh, the Pistons obviously need a, a, a joke there. So that probably bodes well for them next season. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. And I'm sure all staffs are put together like this. Amar. You know, Mark Bryant is kind of known for coaching up the big men. Well, we know we have Jalen Dern, James Wiseman, Mark. And just because he's known for that doesn't mean it's going to pay off. Jarrett Jack with guards, Dan Burke with the defense, Steven Silas coming in. I'm really intrigued to see you know, Monty and Steven working together, you know, with the offensive stuff. And I do, you know, I assume that we know the answer to this, but Camille asked, is John Beeline still with the Pistons? I haven't seen or heard anything different. Amari, is that the case that Beeline is still with the team? I'm not sure. I've been, I've been checked in with, with Beeline since all the Monty stuff went down. I know, I know Beeline came in to work with Dwayne Casey and, uh, you know, like they had a friendship and Dwayne reached out to him to uh, bring him on board. So that could change how Dwayne is in the front office position, but we will see on, on that. You know, generally when there's, Coaching changes, you know, it's just safer to expect that there's going to be significant staff changes as well. But Monty did say that he would look to retain some people. So that's a, a TBD. We'll just see on that. 
I'm interested to see what your thoughts on are on this, Omari, in terms of the names he was able to bring in to Detroit. I mean, Steven Silas was, I realize, not a super successful head coach in Houston, but that's a big name, and he got him to come to Detroit. Dan Burke is a big name, and as you talk about, usually assistant coaches get recycled with new head coaches. Dan Burke lasted multiple head coaches, I believe, and it was Indiana. So obviously a big name on the market. He's been in Philly most recently. I just think that that maybe speaks to who Monty is, maybe how these coaches feel about the organization and this young core. I don't know. What, what is your takeaway from the fact he was able to bring in guys like Steven Silas, Dan Burke, you know, obviously has a relationship with Jared Mack and Mark Bryant, but, but I thought that was really telling and I was really excited that maybe it was just kind of spoke to how Monty is viewed around the NBA. Yeah, I mean, it, it always bodes well when you're able to get a respected assistant cinematic organization. Uh, Dan Burke, he's been doing this, I believe, 30-plus years. And I think this is only his fourth franchise, and he was in Indiana for a while. And I think it's interesting that he lasted in Indiana as long as he did, you know, given that Larry Bird is on the record, you know, multiple times saying that he just believes in cycling through, through coaches. He just thinks, you know, coaches tend to lose the, the room after a certain amount of years, and you just have to keep bringing new voices in. But you know, Dan Burke was immune from that. So uh must be some sort of credit to him, right, that you could, you know, stick around through several staffs. You know, it, it bodes well. You know, I think the Pistons, like, they won 17 games last year, but, you know, a lot of that was just them losing a lot toward the end. They, they probably should have cracked 20 wins if they uh, were trying to win all the way until the end. And you have Cade Cunningham, you have Ivy up the fifth pick, you know, you've got veterans, uh, you've got ingredients to be, a pretty good team sooner rather than later. Uh, so if you're an assistant coach, so it's like, okay, am I going to go to another, like Steven Silas, for example, are you going to go to another situation where, you know, it's win now and, uh, you know, you know, change typically starts with the coach if things don't work out. Or you go to a situation where Monty, I mean, he has six to eight years, right, to kind of help get this thing on the right track. And, you know, I think it projects a uh, uh, an air of stability that maybe a lot of coaching staffs don't have where you have a, a uh, superstar who maybe has a few years left on their deal or there's just this pressing need to win games now. So to me, I think, uh, you know, speaks to Monty and, and the Pistons, but also just to where they are in their rebuild. And, you know, that they have a, a few years to kind of figure things out where maybe in other cities you don't have that. Omari, one thing I am intrigued about the new coaching staff is essentially it's, I don't know a more subtle way to say it, but it's like it's put up or shut up time for some of these players, Omar. You know, James Wiseman was in Golden State. Then he got to play for Dwayne Casey for half a season. Now he's going to get a new coach. Killian Hayes. Uh, most Killian Hayes supporters blame Dwayne Casey for Killian Hayes not being the player they thought he should be. Now you're getting a new coach. Like to me, it, this is going to be a really interesting season. Just in totality, what is Cade Cunningham? What is Jay Nivey? What are those guys together? What is Killian Hayes? There's no longer going to be the excuse of this offense that quote unquote doesn't fit him. Marvin Bagley, Isaiah Stewart. Like I just, I'm excited about the season, not just for the coaching staff, but also just for some of these players. I think it's time to really find out where they're going to be at and kind of get rid of some of the excuses that they could hide behind or fans maybe would hide behind with them. Uh, you know, I'm curious to see. Uh, one thing Dwayne said a lot last year was like next year, we're not going to have the same patience that yeah. we had this year. That's a better way and, to say it. You know, maybe with you no know, Monty coming in year one, uh, he'll get a grace that maybe Dwayne didn't have just being, uh, you know, with the organization as long as he had been. You know, not that it's Dwayne's fault that things kind of blew up halfway through his tenure. But, I mean, with with Monty, there will be, like, really starting now, I think, an evaluation period. But the organization does have some big decisions to make. Uh, your 2020 class, you know, including James Wiseman and that, even though they, they didn't draft him, is extension eligible. You know, so you're probably going to commit big money to at least one of those guys. You know, I would think Isaiah Stewart probably stands the best chance to make an extension this summer. And uh, he's probably the only one that really makes sense. Like, I just don't know if you extend Killian or James Wiseman until they show you a, a little bit more. The thing with Monty is, I guess, what's the line between let's evaluate these guys, but also we have three years of information on some of them. And, you know, maybe we know uh, which way we need to pr proceed. And they have some big decisions to make now, even with Monty having six to eight years as far as the future's some of these players, um, you know, of course, they can easily just bring certain players into restricted free agency as well. And uh, there's no downside there. But I'm curious to see where the organization is as far as just their readiness to start winning games. I know they don't want to repeat last year. Like, I don't expect them to 
um, you don't have any more top six, seven picks unless things just go dramatically wrong. But I think really the next couple of weeks uh, with the draft of free agency will tell us a lot about where they are as far as that that timeline. I think right now a lot of that's still remaining to be seen. No, I think that's what I was going to say as well, Omari. The thing with this offseason is they have the flexibility to really show their hand or, or almost right. forced to show their hand, right? with who you take at number five, with who you take at 31, right? We've talked about like Jaime Jaquez at 31. To me, drafting Jaime Jaquez at 31 speaks more to we want to go ahead and win some games over the next few years as opposed to if you take a guy that I really like, Julian Phillips, who's probably a couple years down the road. There's some same options at five in terms of that. And then you have $30 million in cap space. Do you use that on a guy that's going to help you win now? Do you use it to trade for sin contract and, and, you know, assets down the road? So I think the organization for the first time truly is going to be forced to show their hand or really let us know where they believe. Now, at the end of the day, we don't always know what happens behind the scenes, Amari. They may have tried to sign such player and, you know, that guy wouldn't sign with them. So, we, you know, we don't always know. Sometimes they have to be able to pivot. But I do think in general, we're going to get an idea. And speaking of guys on the market, before we go to break, I at least have to bring this up. It was in the chat. Draymond Green reportedly has opted out of his player option for this next season. So a guy that some people have talked about, Draymond Green is going to be a free agent. I don't think that I'm interested, but I don't know. What would you be interested at all, Omari, with Draymond Green? For the right price, sure. Uh, I mean, I think just from a uh, culture building standpoint, from a defensive standpoint, from a who can really raise our floor standpoint, it's hard to do better than Draymond. You know, I think he just opted out of a, a deal that uh, just that first year, or really the last year of the deal he opted out of, I think it was around $28 million. would have been all of Detroit's cap space. So, you know, I'm curious you know, just how expensive that tax would be for the Pistons being a rebuilding team, trying to go after him when he could probably go to another winning situation or even just saying going to state. Uh, you know, I still think there's a really good chance that he just uh, signs for more money overall but spread out over more years just to save them some money. So we will see on that. Uh, he doesn't strike me. You know, I think it's really just up to Draymond, right? If he wants to, you know, come home and, you know, play for the, the team. I'm assuming he grew up watching the Pistons. I don't know for a fact, but, you know, he's from Michigan, so... Um, you know, maybe there's meaning meaning for him there that uh, we haven't quite perceived yet. But just from a culture defense standpoint, it's hard to do better than Draymond. Yeah, I mean, there would definitely be something he could add to the table. It just I wonder what the perception of the Pistons is around the league. This is what's always interesting to me, Omari. Do guys like him see them as a team that they can come in and just help them take that next step? Or do they still see them as a team that's really far away? But again, speaking to the Monty Williams hiring, maybe they look at that hiring and say, hey, this organization is serious about really starting to win games. And I can go in there. I can be the veteran presence. I can help them out defensively. I'll take that role. In Draymond's case, Omari, he's already won the championships. He's made a boatload of money. So maybe he's more likely than some of these other names that we throw around to be willing to do that because he's willing to say, hey, I've got my championships. I'll just go help this young core. I have no idea what the relationship with Monty Williams or any of these assistant coaches are. And that's that's one aspect I think it's hard to keep track of or for us to know is what kind of relationships those guys have made throughout the years because we know there's so much intertwined and overlapping between all of those guys. So you're right. At a certain price, it makes sense. Yeah, you know, three years and, you know, a, a lower cap number, that makes sense. But I just, I wonder if, you know, he still wants to compete at a high level, really win games and be playing deep into the playoffs as opposed to help this Pistons team, you know, make that small step just into, you know, the play-in tournament or something like that. It's definitely worth thinking about. Uh, I think just for me, the money and really the Pistons have flexibility as a whole, right? And you have Draymond who, Obviously, you know, the back half of your career, um, you know, you extend uh, a large deal to him to prime here. And you got to think about, you know, 2025, 26, 26, 27, like how much can you ex extend and how much does that help us versus just flexibility we have now where maybe you don't have to rush things. So uh, be curious to see that, you know, if I had to guess, though, I still think he probably goes back to Golden State. But, you know, we haven't even gotten to the draft yet. There's a lot that will go down for the next couple of weeks. So uh, something we could revisit. 
Yeah, it's going to be a crazy two weeks coming up. We got, uh, we'll have our draft reaction just so you guys know. Friday morning, we'll go live. Omari obviously has a ton of work to do Thursday night, and then the podcast will be out as soon as possible after that. And we'll keep pumping out episodes. We'll go live from Vegas here in a couple of weeks, Omari. That'll be fun. And we'll have a lot of free agency news from that. We're going to take a short break right here. And then, Omari, when we come back, let's dive into the draft. We're going to start off in the scenario that Amin Thompson is drafted number four by the Rockets. And then Omari and I will talk about what we think the Pistons should do. We'll dive into that right after this short break. All right, we're back with segment two. And I just want to start off by saying there's been a lot of debate on who the Pistons should take. There's like five or six players who make sense. And I reported that they worked out the Thompson Twins, Anthony Black, Cam Whitmore. Uh, Jairus Walker and Taylor Hendricks over the last two weeks. And I was just say right now, truly, I do not think that there's a bad option for them at number five. I think you can make an argument for any one of those players and make a very sound, logical argument and be completely right. Um, you know, I always like seeing how passionate people get where, like, I, I even had somebody I mentioned saying this morning, like, oh, the Pistons are going to draft so-and-so player. Just with complete certainty. I'm like, you are you are more certain than people in the organization right now. Like, how do you know? Like, where are you getting your information from? Uh, but it's just fun to see just all the debate going and also to be in a position for the Pistons where you have a very clear need at the 3-4. And you have six options who would all address that need in, in various ways. I mean, I really don't think there is a clear-cut best option, and it's more so what you prioritize in a, in a, a prospect. You know, some people prioritize shooting more or less. People value the processing and playmaking or defense or whatnot a few days before the draft it's just like you could do a number of ways i don't think you're wrong no i'm glad you brought that up amari because i wanted to get into it at some point and i know we're in a day and age i had somebody tell me this very early on like bryce you have to speak more authoritative like with more certainty like 100 percent. i'm like that's just not me i'm gonna be willing to understand every side of an argument. And so that's one piece of advice. I try to take advice and run with it. That's one piece of advice I honestly kind of ignored with my quote unquote content creation journey, because I can see the argument for any of these six guys. I'm very much settled into my top two. I have a tear break. And then the other four guys, Omari, I'm kind of all over the place. And I can see your side of it. I know you and I are going to disagree on some prospects as we go throughout the rest of the episode. But I think we see the conversation and why, hey, Pistons fan from Brazil, thank you. Appreciate it so much. I wonder what time it is in Brazil right now. That would be interesting to know. But thank you, uh, listeners, watchers from all over the world, Omari. I love it. I know we got, you know, Camille from Turkey as well. So, but I just, I'm with you. I, I love the conversation. Like I am eating this up right now. I enjoy this. And I know some people are tired of it. I enjoy it, but I don't always enjoy the like just matter of fact that people have about a certain prospect or a couple certain prospects and unwilling to even entertain the idea that their prospect may be flawed in some way or another prospect could be better. So that's, that's where I start to get a little bit frustrated. I think that's kind of what you're speaking to as well, because I agree with you. I can, I can legitimately make an argument for all six of these guys that we're talking about. I'm not saying I necessarily believe it. I have my ranking, but I could make an argument that I could somewhat stand on about all six of them. And I assume you could do somewhat of the same. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I wrote uh, in my mock draft over the weekend, I had up taking Cam Whitmore. And, you know, I even explained, like, I got an explainer piece today that the Pistons are considering from a few guys. And, you know, you can make arguments for all of these people. But, you know, I, I, I just think part of the process naturally is that some people are always going to be higher on certain prospects than you or lower on certain prospects than you. You know, personally, like, I, you know, I feel like my tolerance for, like, debating on Twitter, like, declines, like, 25% every year. You know, so I do it maybe, like, once every two weeks, and then I'm just, like, off Twitter for a couple of weeks. Uh, you know, but even then, you know, I think you, like, you see where people are, are, are coming from, at least, right? Like, I know, like, this week, a lot of people are debating the Thompson twins. Like, how do you, like, how do you evaluate them, right? Like, you have OTE, like, you're 20 years old, playing a league with, you know, a lot of guys who are 19 and younger, but still, you look at the athleticism and the things that they can do, and it's tantalizing, right? And you look at what they could do if they came to Detroit. You know, I tweeted yesterday, and I do want to debate this a little bit. Like, why are people not talking about Anthony Black as much? You know, it's interesting to me that there's so much uh, fascination with the Twins when Anthony Black does pretty much all the same stuff, and he's a year younger, 
you can make the, the argument that SEC competition is probably a little bit harder than OTE where he's defending other actual NBA players, you know, some of whom are older than he is. And that's been curious to me. Like, I feel like he's like, and they worked him out, I believe, last, last Wednesday. You know, it's just curious to be that he hasn't really gotten the same, uh, you know, play as some of these other guys have. And maybe it's because he shot 30% from three. I don't know. But I like Anthony Black a lot. And honestly, I would say, uh, just for my evaluation, where I do value athleticism, but I also value processing and uh, just playing with some physicality. Like I see Anthony Black got to the line like five times a game, which is really elite for college, like really elite. <laughs> and he and you put them in a, on a court with NBA spacing, and he's just going to get downhill. He's got a 39-inch vert, you know, season four like a point guard. I'm surprised that Anthony Black has not gotten more attention in this. And that's the only thing I have to offer for the overarching debate today is why are we not talking about Anthony Black? So my quick answer to that is I see Anthony Black and Amin Thompson in similar type of players. Like they would have to come in and play similar type of role where they're more of on-ball guys that Detroit's going to ask to play off-ball. Although I will say Anthony Black has shown that more than Amin. I believe in Amin's abilities to do so. But I just think that Amin is a better prospect than Anthony Black. And so because of that, I haven't talked about him as much because I'm like, if you're going to take that type of player, then I would just take a men over Anthony Black. It's the same reason why I don't talk much about Asar. I think Cam Whitmore and Asar are essentially like the only two true wings of these six. And I have Cam Whitmore ahead of Asar. So I would just take Cam Whitmore over Asar. You're right, though. Like, again, and I've said this multiple times. People have said that Anthony Black is the best processor in this entire class. He is very athletic. He's not Thompson Twins athletic, but he's very athletic. He was in a really weird team construct without a lot of shooting, especially after Trevon Brazil went down for Arkansas. As much as people like Jordan Walsh, he didn't space the floor for them. And I think Anthony Black is a really, really good defender. I saw you talking about this yesterday. And so I think it's more proven in terms of his defense than even the Twins. One of my biggest pushbacks on the Twins, Omari, is I think people are just saying, hey, they're going to be high-level defenders. I think they're going to be high-level defenders. I don't think they're high-level defenders right now. I don't think they've shown that in OTE, even going back to international film. I think they have a lot of things they're going to have to learn and grow and bad habits to break. And so I understand someone who feels like Anthony Black is a little more safe and would just say, hey, this guy does a lot of the same stuff that Amin does. Why not just take the safer guy who probably has a better looking jumper than Amin as well? And I think Anthony Black's upside is being um, underrated as well. Like, I think he has a really high floor. And I think a lot of what people get into Anthony Black, too, is, you know, maybe he's more of a, a lead guard than a wing or whatnot. And I just look at Boston, like, I look at guys like Derek White, Malcolm Brogdon. Uh, you know, obviously, you have the two wings over there and uh, Tatum and Jalen Brown. But I just don't think you can have too many like on ball guys uh but to, back to your point about defense i would say i just think it's probably harder to defend in the sec than it is in ote and i think with Amin and a star they have all the tools you would want for uh, players to be elite defenders in the nba and they could get there and i do think they would be at least average but anthony black like i do think he's probably he is probably either the first or second best defensive prospect that the Pistons could look at at that position. If you just look at overall versatility, uh, people talk about Jairus Walker and he's a, a monstrous de- defensive prospect. Uh, we have to talk to him a little bit. I saw your face. Uh, you know, I think if you, you know, I think specifically we talk about players who can defend the LeBrons, the Tatums, like these, these big wings, right. Or even like the Shea Gills, like those types of guys. And I feel like I trust Anthony black to do that. Where if any other player in that group, whereas Hendricks Walker, they're more like backline defenders who can switch, but I don't know if you want to make those types of players like the primary assignment for them. So maybe def- defensively, I feel like it's maybe the biggest mischaracterization of Anthony Black I have. It's like this dude is six seven, and he should be able to defend one through four pretty well. Like you probably don't want him too close to the the paint, but as far as perimeter wise, I think he's the most proven of that group by far. All right, let's stay on Anthony Black because I don't feel like we've given Anthony Black the deserved love. I know you're a fan. Wes is a huge We're talking fan. about everybody else. We have not uh, talked Anthony Black that we, much. We can talk Anthony Black as yeah. long as we talk about the Thompson Twins and this is a, hey, we can't call ourselves a Cam Whitmore friendly podcast and not talk about Cam Whitmore at some point. I wish you guys could see Wes in the back just you know doing the double fist bump and smiling. So we're going to stay on Anthony Black for just a little bit. 
What if anything, this is an interesting question from Steve T. What if anything does Asar Thompson do better right now than Anthony Black? So I think they're very similar players, right? They are both really good playmakers for their size. They're both around 6'7". You know, I don't know if a star is like necessarily a point guard type of playmaker where Anthony Black is. So I would actually give Anthony Black maybe a slight nod there, especially when you look at that Arkansas team. And not only was he playing next to another lead ball handler, Ricky Council, the fourth. I was going to say third. I think it's the fourth. I'm, I'm, I'm the, the second. So, the I, so, I, so I, have to get, I have to get people's suffix. Like I cannot get the suffix wrong. I have to get that right. That's a pet peeve for me when people get my wrong. Uh, you know, if he's playing next to Ricky Council and, uh, you know, then you had Nick Smith come in. So you had like a lot of on-ball guys at Arkansas. And you look at Anthony Black, and he's still moving the ball really well. You know, none of those guys were great shooters. Uh, but still, Anthony Black made it happen. So I think maybe as a playmaker, he is a bit more proven where he was in an environment that really wasn't playmaking friendly, but, you know, he was able to make the right reads. You know, I think defensively, I think Asar could be a really monstrous defender. I mean, like six seven, just the way he moves, and we see him locked in. He really got into guys. You say the same thing about Anthony Black, uh, you know. And then he's in the SEC. I mean, you're playing Brandon Miller. Like you're playing a lot of guys who be in the NBA next season and the season beyond. So maybe that makes me feel better about him. Where you're 19 in the league of guys 18 through 23, you know, versus being 20 in the league where every, almost everybody's younger than him. That makes me feel a little bit better about Black. Uh, athletically, I think Asar's probably a little bit better, but again. Like sometimes it's like Anthony Black, and it's like, well, he's not as good of an athlete as those guys. Anthony Black had a 39 inch vert and got to the line a lot. You don't do that unless you are extremely crafty or very athletic. And he had a mix of, of both. I mean, his free throw rate is just like, especially on a team with no spacing, like the way he did that, it's just like, like that's a natural, to me, that speaks to how athletic he is. And I think once you get to the very top end of athleticism, uh, it's almost like wine, right? Like there's diminishing returns after a certain point. Like you don't necessarily need, like if one guy's a 95th percentile and Anthony Black, maybe like 85, 90, like you're still getting a plus athlete. Anthony Black is still one of the better athletes in the draft. So I don't know how much you're sacrificing from maybe an actual practical, what are you doing in game standpoint? You know, but again, it's kind of tough to project how a star would do certain things in the NBA, just given the difference in competition. So I just feel like I, I have a better feel of what Anthony Black will do just because we know how players make the, tr- the transition from the SEC, whereas OTE is still very much, maybe I have to see it before I believe it, although he still has the tools. And it's, they're in the same tier for me. It's like there's a big gap, but I'd have to see it for OTE. I think there is some sort of misconception sometime with the athleticism. I think you bring up a good point. I think I was texting Wes about this with Tyree Kill. I always say I'm a big Kansas City Chiefs fan. You know, he's not there anymore. But everybody was always like, oh, this guy's the next Tyree Kill. This guy's the next Tyree Kill because they ran a fast 40. Tyree Kill isn't Tyree Kill just because he's super, super fast. Tyree Kill is Tyree Kill because he can locate the ball and track the ball 50 yards down the field along with being crazy fast. And he can catch and contort his body. All that. My point is, just because the Thompson Twins or anybody, this is Hamadou Diallo, Amari. Hamadou Diallo is an insane athlete. I don't know if he's like top 1% like the Twins and he's not as tall and long as them, but just because you're a crazy athlete, you have to be able to produce then and do something with that athleticism. That's my overall concern with the SAR is... I didn't see the creativity in the half court for Asar to put pressure on the lane, put pressure on the rim, and then actually finish on the rim. And I'm going to say this, and I know people are going to hate it, and it's going to sound like we're just crushing the OTE. They were 20 years old, Amari, playing against 16, 17, 18-year-old kids in that. And we're not even talking about Montverde or Link Academy or Sunrise Christian. Like those aren't the types of teams they're playing against that have all the, you know, number one recruits in the country going to all the blue blood. So I do have some concerns about Asar with that. And again, I went and watched the international film early in the year. It was the same stuff. So I believe more in a men because I saw a men do that type of stuff. So again, I, I know this was Anthony Black. I guess the answer to the question is I don't have a solid answer of what Asar does better. Like, I don't, I don't know that I can give a concrete answer other than he is more athletic, but Anthony Black, by the numbers, put more pressure on the rim. I will say this for the Twins, though. While the competition they played against wasn't great, I don't know that the 
teammates they had really spaced the floor and all those things super well either. So I do think that that's one caveat we should give them. You know, whenever Jay Nivey was coming in, Omari, we said, oh, well, he played at Purdue with two big guys clogging the lane all the time. It's not like the Twins were just playing with this super space floor either. So I, I do want to add that caveat in their favor that they were having to deal with some of that stuff also. And that's the thing. I don't see the OTE uh, competition as a red flag per se. It's just a flag. I don't know what to make of it. You know, I just, like I said, I have to see it before I believe it. It is just something that you factor into the evaluation. It could be completely meaningless. You know, I don't, I'm not saying I think that they're going to bust because they're playing younger competition. I just see sometimes people say, like, we don't knock, like, we didn't knock, like, one and done prospect. Not one and done. We didn't knock kids coming out, coming out of high school for playing high schoolers and going to the NBA. The difference for me is like, okay, well, if you're 17 playing high schoolers, that's different from you know being 20 playing high schoolers. So it's just a flag. I don't know if it's a red flag, green flag, whatnot. Obviously, they dominated OTE. They were you know very efficient, uh, you know, outside of just outside the perimeter, but interior, you know, at the rim, like they were good. Like there's still a lot that speaks to them as prospects and why they're why they're considered to be top 10 talents in this draft. You know, I'm in my go as high as four. So there's a lot going that way. But as far as Anthony Black and Asar, they're very similar players. I'll just say that they're very similar players. But I think a lot of people talk about when Anthony Black's elite, you know, ball handler. So he won't fit in Detroit. And I'll say, well, you played with Ricky Council and Nick Smith in, in college and made it work. And I think both of those guys are NBA players. Ricky Council is probably more of a second round pick. But, you know, I still think he has a lot of talent, got to the line and figure it out. And if he could do it in college, I don't see why he wouldn't be able to do it in the NBA, especially since most teams now don't have just one ball handler. They have two or three guys who could get it done. Yeah, and so that leads me into the bigger conversation of Anthony Black, Amin, and just how this works. So let's talk about Amin, because you and I have talked about this and whether or not he can actually work with Detroit, with Cade, with Ivy. And I agree that it's a wonky fit. Well, let me go back one second, Omari. I think what you just said is important as well. Neither of us are saying that Asar Thompson isn't a top nine pick. I don't think, anyway, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I know he's in that tier for me. He's in that tier for me too. Yeah, so that's what I'm saying. We're not saying he shouldn't be in the lottery. We're not saying he's not a first-round pick. We're not saying he's a bust. We're just saying that in this group of players where we have these six guys, eventually you have to rank them in some way and prioritize fit and upside and floor and what we've seen and what we've been, what we trust. Are we more risk averse or we want to take a chance? You know, those type of things. How good do you think Caden and Ivy are? And so that's where we're at. So I, I just want to make that point. Nobody's saying that Asar just sucks and isn't going to be a good NBA player. It just may be like, hey, what I saw from Anthony Black, I trust a little bit more. I think he fits. That's why I have a men so much higher than Asar Amari. And I think a men can fit offensively with this team. It comes down to this. And this is true with a lot of guys. And I want to continue to talk about this because I think it plays into Cam Whitmore as well. It comes down to the intel, Omari. What are these guys saying in interviews? What do they look like in their workouts? Are they going to be willing to take a backseat? If a men says, I don't want to play off the ball, then they absolutely shouldn't draft him, Amari. The Pistons should not draft him if a men says, I see myself as a primary creator as the point guard. Good. Move on or trade the pick. I get it. I understand it then. People I've talked to seem to think that he's the type of kid that would accept that role. I buy the feel. I think he can go play off ball in the quote unquote uh, Andre Iguodala role when Kate is on the floor. And then he gets to essentially run the second unit as the point guard when Kate is off the floor. This also speaks to my belief in Jaden Ivey as an off-the-ball player. So I just think that all of those things are important to take into account. And there's a lot of intel stuff that we have no idea about. And I think a lot of it is just willingness to play off-ball. And then when you look at them as an off-ball prospect, what do they bring? Like when I make the comparison to Anthony Black and the Twins, I'm not necessarily saying I think Anthony Black is 100% a better prospect in the position to be looking at the Twins. I'm just saying I see a lot of fascination with the Twins from the fan base. And I'm just curious why... Anthony Black hasn't had that when they have a lot of the same strengths and weaknesses. But I think for our men, questions for me, I mean, obviously he's one of the most gifted athletes we've ever seen pick up a basketball. Uh, The playmaking is real. First step, getting downhill, body control, all that full package. It's one, can he become any type of shooter? And people, you know, I've noticed people have a tendency to put all non-shooters in the same category, but they're not. Um, You know, like I saw somebody last night kind of mention you know, I don't want it to be black because, okay, big point guard, moves the ball, solid defender, no no jump shot. And they kind of make the comparison to Killian Hayes. And it's like, well, 
Killian Hayes is the first Killian Hayes. There's a lot of big point guards that didn't have jumpers, and you've had different outcomes for them, right? Uh, so it doesn't automatically mean our shot's broken. But for our men, you know, where you, I think he shot with 23 or 25 percent in OTE, and we saw Asar make a leap in the playoffs. We didn't see our men make that same leap, and they also struggled at the line. I don't think he ever cracked 70 percent at the line. You know, maybe there is, you know, maybe less momentum for him as a shooter than for some of the other players who are theoretical shooters. Like you could make an argument that Jarius Walker is in some ways still a theoretical shooter. Uh, you know, so there's to me there's different ranges of non-shooter, and for Amen for me to be comfortable, it's one can he shoot because the ball's going to be in Kate and Ivy's hands a lot, and if Amen needs the ball, uh, those you know, Kate and Ivy are playing off of him. So one of those guys needs to shoot. Kate hasn't shot that well. You know, Ivy shot pretty well last season. But again, you're talking about three players who have not proven that they can be above average shooters yet. So that's problematic. And then two, can he cut? Can he defend? Can he, you know, pick up the slack in, in, in other ways? I think that's what it comes down to. So with Black, we've seen that happen because he played with Robert Anders with the Twins because everything ran through them. We haven't seen it as much. So that's just something else that goes into my evaluation of those three prospects. No, and it makes complete sense. And I, what I've come to realize, Omari, is my infatuation with Amin. I, I think everybody would agree he's a high-level prospect, right? Like super high ceiling. He can be a really good player. I think it's the coach in me that's just like, I want to be able to figure out how to put these pieces together. And it would be a lot of fun. Like I, I sit here and I have no chance of ever playing a factor in what the Pistons do offensively, but I imagine things that and ways it could work between Cade, Ivy and a and where you put Ivy and how you use a and what you have to put next to him. And where's Jalen Duran and all of this. And I just, I personally believe there's a way to make it work offensively. And then I think defensively, he is that wing that you need. And so like, that's just where I'm at. Again, if you want to come at me and say, a man makes no sense. I don't necessarily agree, but I understand what you're saying. I see in the chat, we're getting a lot of Taylor Hendricks. I disagree that Taylor Hendricks is a wing, but I understand anybody who is saying that Taylor Hendricks is the best fit or uh, the biggest need for this team because of his shooting. I understand that. I get it. If you're telling me like, hey, that's what he's going to do. And, and I believe in his ability to do that. I'm cool with it. Not where I would go, not at five. I would be more willing to trade down. But again, I understand it. So I just, I kind of believe in the creativity and the fun you can have with a man. And I just think it can work. I think the biggest pushback, I'd be interested to see what you think real quick before we go to break, Amari. I think the biggest pushback I get is, I think Jaden Ivey can almost exclusively play off the ball. And I don't think Pistons fans want that after what we saw towards well, almost all of last season. How comfortable would you be in that scenario where it's either ball in Cade's hands or a men's hands and Ivy's essentially playing off ball, attacking advantages those guys have created? Are, are you comfortable with that? Do you think Jane would be comfortable with that? You know, I think you have to be comfortable with it. You know, I think, you know, one thing we talk about comfort level with players, I was thinking of modern NBA, um, the boss the ball has to move, you know, the ball can't stick, the ball can't stay in one player's hands. And we talked so much about Ivy last year, like on ball, off ball. Uh, you know, I still think he can embrace cutting and we saw him shoot the ball pretty well. Uh, like a lot of pull-up threes, but off the catch as well. Uh, but I think that that could work. Um, you know, I'm probably not as worried about having three lead ball handlers as much as maybe some other people are. Like if I'm in, is there a five? You know, by all means, if that's the top player on the board, take him. Uh, you know, or if it's Anthony Black or Asar or whoever else, you know, I think that that's... I think that that's fine. Like you just draft for talent and you don't worry about fit as much. And that's everything that goes to Anthony Black would be is just go for talent. You know, if he's the most talented player and then don't worry about if he needs the ball or not, because in the modern NBA, you're not going to have it as much as you probably wanted anyway. You know, I mean, we saw Jamal Murray and Jokic make it work pretty well, right? You know, or, you know, Harden and Embiid and Embiid's a great playmaker for a big. So that doesn't bother me as much. You know, I think I'm in that you put him on, on this team. It'll be fine. Like, it'll be some growing pains. But if he lives up to his potential and you just have three really good on-bar guys, then that's a good situation to have. And if you have to correct the roster in a few years, make a trade, you could just do that. We got to take a short break. When we come back, Amari, we're going to get to some of these questions. And that will lead us into this conversation around Cam Whitmore, Jairus Walker, all these other guys anyway. So we'll start off with a question on Cam Whitmore. My guy, Trader Coe's, wanting you to let him know that the Pistons are going to draft Cam Whitmore. I don't think you can do that, Amari. But we'll start off with that after this short break. All right, we are back with segment three. And uh, let's get into Cam Whitmore because we have a lot of uh, Cam Whitmore questions sort of sitting here in the chat. 
uh, Trader Cons, please tell me that the Pistons are, are drafting Cam Whitmore. I don't know. I don't know who, who, who they're drafting. You know, I don't think they know who they're drafting. It comes down to who have, what takes place in front of them. And to have those debates this week, but, you know, I'm just making it clear. You know, I think, you know, Cam Whitmore is very high in their list. I think they're where he checks a lot of boxes for them. But it's a debate. You know, I think you can go a number of ways and feel pretty good about it. And I'm not going to, like, I even got a question on Twitter a few minutes ago, like, uh, so, like I wrote my Ken Whitmore explainer and somebody was like, well, actually, this says you're taking Ken Whitmore at five. And I'm like, the story says there are six players that could go with that all fit. You know, I'm not saying Ken Whitmore is the, the pick. You know, I don't think anybody at this point, a few days before the draft, knows what for sure is going to happen. But I know me and Bryce, you know, being the Ken Whitmore fans that we are, you know, I think we love his fit here in Detroit. And I think if it did work out that way, that uh, this would be a great landing spot for him given that he could focus on his strengths and not have to play make as much, which of course getting to another question in the, the chat is his biggest red flag. It is. And there's no denying it, Amari. My bigger worry with Cam Whitmore and this feel for the game or the playmaking is actually, it's actually on the defensive end of the floor. I'm not worried about Cam Whitmore necessarily being a playmaker. I think he can make the simple read. Just don't put him in ball screen situations where he has to read the defense and make high-level decisions. Don't do that. You have Caden Ivey to do that if that's what you want to do. I think Cam Whitmore can shoot. I think that's a big cause of distinction between people who like Cam and people who don't. I think he can shoot. I truly do. I think the form looks good. I think he's going to knock down open catch and shoot. And then I think he's crazy explosive attacking closeouts. I think you can do creative stuff with him. I think you could actually put him in the dunker spot if you wanted to do that for whatever reason. I think he can get out in transition. All of those things. I think he's going to be a good on-ball defender. My biggest worry is his field defensively. Is he going to be able to contribute to an overall defensive scheme? Again, Omari, this comes down to the intel. And if all of a sudden we hear the Pistons don't like Cam or they're souring on Cam Whitmore, it probably comes down to how they feel about that. What was the context around Villanova? You and I have talked about this a lot. I feel very comfortable saying there was not a healthy relationship between Cam Whitmore and the coaching staff at Villanova. If you want to see the video, I have it. I I recorded it from one game. Whose fault is that, Omari? Because I think a lot of people say, oh, that's Cam Whitmore. Well, if you're saying that, I hope you're not the same person who blamed Dwayne Casey for all of Killian Hayes' shortcomings, right? Or in the Monty Williams-DeAndre Ayton situation, who gets all the blame? DeAndre Ayton. I don't know the answer to any of those. You don't, we don't know unless you're in the locker room. So I think it really comes down to, was he misused at Villanova? Was Villanova a train wreck? All I know is he definitely wasn't happy there. You could see it. It was not a a conducive environment, but it may have been Cam's fault. So that's where a lot of this intel comes into it. I just think Amari, he can shoot it. I think he can get downhill. He's an explosive athlete. I think he'll defend and all buy that you can get him into a system where he grows a little bit with what he does defensively off the ball. And he does enough on offense to keep the ball moving. I realize he's not a high processor like Cade. I think you have that with Cade and Duran and Jaden Ivey. I'm about to dump a lot of cold water on the Pistons to the void cam because of the playmaking issues. Uh, you know, belief that, which I'm not saying there's no validity to that, but uh, out of the six prospects, right? So the Thompson Twins, Cam, Jarris, Taylor, and Anthony Black, you have three guys who are great processors, three guys who you are not necessarily drafting for their processing. Uh, the processors are the Twins and Anthony Black, and the guys that you're probably drafting more so because of their shooting or uh, defensive skills uh, are to be Cam Whitmore, uh, Jarris, and Taylor Hendricks. Uh, Walker... And Hendricks both had assisted turnover ratios where they basically turned the ball over as much as they assisted it. And we talk about some of the flashes Jared showed where he did make good reads. And, you know, he's probably ahead of the other two. But if you're just looking at the raw numbers, you know, none of these guys necessarily were floor raisers as playmakers. You know, I think Cam Whitmore was relied upon as a scorer significantly more than the other two. So a lot of the areas where Cam got in trouble was he's like, well, I'm just going to score the ball. Uh, because Villanova as a whole just didn't have a great structure last year. And I think he kind of freelanced a lot, which frustrated the coaching staff. Uh, you know, but sometimes you're making a bailout pass and there's no option there or you're doing stuff like that. But just watching him play, I didn't see anything that he couldn't outgrow. Like, he didn't turn the ball. 1.6 turnovers a game is not a lot of turnovers. It's just the fact that he had 0.7 assists a game. I think that's more so the problem. It's not that he turned the ball over a lot. It's just that he didn't assist it, and I think that that could be corrected 
with better structure around you, with better scheme. Uh, Villanova obviously did not have a Cade Cunningham or a Jaden Ivey uh, that would make Cam's life a lot easier. And you don't need him to do a lot. It's more so simple reads. And I'll look at just the physicality he has at 18, uh, which he's not, I'm not comparing him to Anthony Edwards as a prospect, but they're both around the same age of when they were drafted and they both just had natural physical gifts that you can't, you can't teach, right? I look at Cam's bar handling, his body control, 40% of catch and shoots, 34% on a lot of self-created threes. Like I really buy into him being a really good shooter. And as far as the playmaking, it's basically the same argument for Jaden Ivey last year, right? Like, yes, Jaden turned the ball over a lot. He's being asked to do a lot. But you put him in the NBA where those athletic gifts would pop a lot more. I just look at Cam. He's going to attract a lot of attention when he goes downhill just because of how good he was at doing it. He's going to get really strong closeouts because he could shoot it. So at that point, it's just making simple reads. Like, oh, okay, the big is open. I can toss a lob or just get it to him underneath. Or, okay, like, you know, the, the help came this way. So now I have the, the shooter there. It's just simple stuff you need to do. You know, I don't think the pathway to him being a plus playmaker is is, is going to be a hard road for him. Uh, just what he's able to do naturally is just understanding the scheme and how you operate in it and it just making the right reads. And for me, the playmaking is not enough of a red flags where I'm like, I'm just not touching Cam Whitmore at all. If he was turning the ball over like three, four times a game, and then it's like, okay, like this guy's a turnover machine. But he wasn't a turnover machine. He just didn't assist the ball a lot. You know, I think that's correctable with scheme and the fact that he's still going to be 18 years old in draft night and it's still earlier in his development than anybody else in that group of prospects for Detroit. And again, I think there's intel you can get to know whether the feel is a real concern or if it was a product of the environment. And it's not stuff we can do. Like, I can sit here and watch film and think I know the answer but if you don't actually talk to a kid like you can watch I could watch film with Cam Whitmore and get insight into what he was thinking what he was seeing and 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 then I would have a better idea if it's a true feel thing or a processing thing or a selfishness thing but I don't know that you can really do that just solely you can get an idea but I don't know that you can be 100% sure and that's where the Pistons and you know the team actually has a better feel for that and if it is a worry like if you think those concerns are real then yeah I get passing on Cam Whitmore but I agree that I think some of that stuff can be developed I will also say this if I played in the Villanova offense this year, Amari, I would have been selfish too because <laughs> I had to watch some of those guards dribble the ball 30 times into post-ups, pivot 17 times, and then take a shot where I never got to touch the ball whenever I was a top five recruit coming out of high school. So all of these players have – I was a nobody, Omari, and I have an ego as a player. If we're going to play pickup ball tomorrow, you better pass me the rock or else I'm going to play one game and I'm going to go home. And so my po- I'm joking, but my point is I understand why sometimes Cam Whitmore caught the ball and said, I'm going to go get a bucket because he didn't trust that if he got rid of the ball, it would ever come back to him. That's not going to be an issue in Detroit. He's going to trust, okay, Cade creates, kicks to me, shots not there, drive, kick to Cade, relocate, all right, Cade's going to get me the ball back, or Ivy, or, you know, Duran, or he's going to have that big man throw the lob up and let him finish. Like I just, again, I don't have all the answers. I don't know that it for sure can be there. Maybe there's real red flags that we don't know about, but I'm just not, I'm like you, I'm not just completely saying, oh, he has no feel. He can't ever be a two assist a game guy who at least keeps the ball moving and throws the lob pass when the big man steps up. Like I just, I have a hard time believing he can't do that. If there's intel that he can't, then sure, pass on him and let's go to the next guy. Because there are other indicators of feel for me that Cam has. One, he was a great cutter, very instinctive. When guys played off of him, he always cut. He was a very willing cutter. A lot of his efficiency at the rim was not just because of how athletic and physical he is, but because he generated a lot of easy opportunities for himself. So, you know, you talk about him maybe being selfish with the ball, but he also made it easy to get the ball to him, which you have Cade and you have Ivy, and now you have a guy like him who's going to be cutting. That's a very useful skill, especially when he's a really good catch-and-shoot player as well. Like, that's just a really dangerous weapon to have. It's like you have two good quarterbacks, and he's, like, a really good wide receiver, right? Like, okay, like, maybe you don't want to run too many plays with wide receivers having to pass the ball, but, you know, it's just as far as, like, a, a play finisher, he's he's great. So that's fine. Two is that he got a lot of steals. And so maybe some of that's gambling, but, you know, I still think typically – Good athletes who rack up steals in college is a really good indicator for the type of player you'll be in the NBA. It's not one-to-one, but to me, the the steals he got in the cutting shows that he understands how offenses operate, right? He just did not embrace his responsibility to be the playmaker. He made other he made his teammates' lives easier. 
without the ball. He did. I think that is unquestionable that he did do that. It's just with the ball, there are some issues there. And I'm just not putting the ball in his hands, Amari. I'm just right. not gonna. I'm not gonna give Cam Whitmer, Whitmore the ball and say go ISO. I'm gonna let Cade and Ivy do their thing. Killian Hayes, whoever it is, Jalen Duran short roll, and I'm just gonna let Cam Whitmore essentially be a play finisher. Those are really good points. And I just want to highlight again. I think he was an environment he wasn't happy. And so it really comes down. Was that Cam's fault? Was it just a bad choice from a young kid? And he's super, super young, Omari, super young. And I know people don't always like the age stuff, but it is a factor. We got to get to a few questions because we did get some, some good ones. This is from Cody, who always joins us with these. Appreciate the support. I see you active in the chat right now. What is the smoke you guys are hearing? Seems like more and more noise around Asar. I, I seem to hear that as well. I'll say this. I don't, this isn't intel, this isn't smoke, this isn't anything I'm hearing. The one thing I've felt for the last week, Amari, I think they're going to take Jairus Walker. The one guy we haven't really talked about so far is actually the guy I think Detroit selects. And that comes a little bit from what you've said, where you feel like Tom Gores is risk averse, you know, like those type of things. I think they would see that with Jairus, that there's a high floor with him. And then just hearing people talk about who Jairus is as a person, as a player defensively, I just think that ends up being who they take. I don't agree with it but I can get behind it and understand it. I just don't think Jairus Walker is as much of a wing as what a lot of people think he is. Yeah, I mean, I think Asar is high on Detroit's list. You know, I did, I know there's speculation that he got a promise from a team ahead of Indiana uh, because he canceled his workout with Indiana. And, you know, I checked in on it. Like, I don't think he got a promise from Detroit. You know, of course, maybe Detroit wouldn't want to tip their hand this early into the process. So we'll see. You know, I don't think he got a promise from the Pistons, but... Yeah, I mean, there's noise around them. There's there's smoke around them. You know, at this stage in the process, there's going to be noise smoke around a lot of guys. And, uh, you know, we'll just see what happens on, on, on Thursday. But, you know, I know people are talking about a start to the Pistons like it's a done deal, and I don't feel that way. And real quick, guys, if you are going to watch the draft live on Thursday, the DBB stream will have – I'll be over there with Wes and Jack, so join us. Obviously, we would love to have Amari. We'd love to do something live on on this stream, but, you know, Amari's got a real job while the rest of us are just podcasting and, and talking. So we'll be with you live Friday morning on this stream, but if you want something during the draft, that's on Thursday night over at the DBB stream. This is from Aruna. I'm so sorry if I didn't pronounce your name correctly. I assume if Houston drafts Whitmore, we're doing everything we can to shop a men right Listen, I just laid out where I think a men fits and how it could work. With that said, again, if a men doesn't want to play that role, if the front office has questions about it, I think a men is the guy where you can get a decent return with a trade out. So I, I'm okay if they say, hey, Whitmore four, a men is on the board at five, and whoever, the Jazz or someone, the Wizards, maybe the Wizards, I feel like should jump all over this. If there's a legitimate return with that, I'm okay with the trade back in that scenario. Yeah, I don't I don't think you shop on Ben. I think you, you know, uh, have the intention of taking them. And I think your phone is probably blaring at that point. You listen to offers, and if an offer makes sense, you go with that. But if an offer isn't making sense, so the team is just like, you know, we'll give you a second round pick or whatever, you're probably just like, I'll just take Amen and we ever go into the season with him or maybe figure it out after. But, you know, like I think in this draft where uh, the top three point guard prospects are Scoot, who will be going, ah, man, and then Casey Wallace. And I do think there's a pretty substantial gap between, at least as far as how the league views them and how pundits view them between Casey and ah, man, that if he's there at five, teams are going to call you. Like there are teams that need point guards. Utah can use a point guard. Uh, the Wizards can use a point guard. Um, I don't know what the Wizards are asset-wise right now, but, you know, you could probably – get a pretty good deal for him uh, if those teams are desperate enough. So I wouldn't automatically shop him. I would just listen to offers, and if no offer makes sense, then you just take him. From Steven Suggs, talking about drafts, he said, heard the Jazz are high on Cam. Also, what would it take for the Jazz to trade for number five? So uh, let's just go through this, Amari. Would you trade five for six and 11 from Orlando? Yeah, I would. I would for sure. Um, with, a, think, with a min on the board. So let's just stay with yeah. Cam goes at four, a min on the board. Yeah, I would move down. I think if I knew I could get one of Anthony Black or Taylor Hendricks um, or Cam Whitmore at six, like to me, honestly, that's pretty much a no-brainer because, again, like my personal pros- favorite prospect is Cam. 
you know, I don't know if the Pistons feel that way. And as well as that, you know, I don't know if I'm so high on Cam that I wouldn't take a second lottery shot in this draft where the gap between 6 and 11 probably would end up not being that that big, in all honesty. Seven is the Pacers, and then they have some late first-rounders. So would you fall to seven and then take some package of a late first-round, maybe you score an extra first down the road or Chris Duarte or something like that? Are you comfortable going back to seven? I think I am. A lot of it just comes down to draft order, but you could probably talk me into going as low as Utah at nine because Utah also has the 16th pick. I could probably go as low as nine and feel comfortable as long as the compensation is good enough. Obviously, the Orlando package is way better, and I don't think Orlando's offering six and 11 for five, by the way, but would you do nine and 16 then? Like, is to me, that's the one that I feel like seems the most realistic in terms of both sides, it gets Utah up to five. They get to go get somebody with super high ceiling and like a man who's probably not going to be there at nine. Detroit falls back to nine, still gets a guy in this tier, gets another shot at a guy at 16, a, a wing shooter, which some of those guys would be available. Would you do that one? Yeah, it depends on who's there at nine, but I would, I would still think about it. I think nine and you get another pick close to lottery. Uh, you know, it's probably just worthwhile to take those shots. Like if I'm getting Jordan Hawkins at 16 or, you know, maybe if it's Orlando, you get Grady Dick at 11 or something like that. Like I feel, I'm feeling pretty good on draft night. Yeah, no, I think that that's really interesting. I mean, you could have had a lot of shooting all of a sudden if you take Taylor Hendricks at nine and then one of those guys at 16. I know a lot of the fan base is really interested in adding shooting. We got a couple more here. This is from Roy Donk. Roy, thank you. I've seen you super active in the chat. I think this is the first time I noticed you. If not, I apologize, but I appreciate you joining us and, and being involved would the Pistons have an easier pick if we had seven or eight instead of five I mean I think what it does is you just limit the numbers right Omari I think we're in agreement that you have the big three which I know there's some talk about Brandon Miller maybe not being a part of that big three but then you have the next six guys so if you're at seven or eight you're just getting rid of some of those guys and I think you probably feel like all you're gonna have an option at is what Anthony Black Hendricks I think a men and Cam are off the board. And I don't think we're talking about those two guys anymore. Essentially, we're talking about four guys now. But I wonder, what do you think? I think this would happen. I think Grady Dick would all of a sudden be in the conversation if they were picking at eight. I don't know that Kaysen Wallace would be. Like, I wonder if people would start talking about Bilal Koulibaly and stuff like that. So I wonder if you'd all just replace a men and Cam with a couple of those guys from next tier. Yeah, I mean, it's easier just in the sense that you know, you're picking for fewer options who are on top of your board, but it's, it's, you know, it's better to be at five and seven or eight, obviously, you know, I think, you know, just from a draft board standpoint, you want to get as high as possible. So, you know, it's, it's easier, but that doesn't necessarily make it better. Right. And I'm not saying you were implying that it's better to pick a seven or eight, but it's probably just only easier just because a lot of your top guys are off the board at that point. So you're just picking from who's left over. I think it'd still be a lot of fun for content creators like me. Like, you know, we'd still have plenty of guys to talk about. Last one here, Jalen Bell. Just logged in, y'all. Thank you, Jalen. And thanks to everybody who tuned in. We we got really close to 100 at one point. I think that's kind of our next goal is to, to hit 100 on one of these lives. And of course, thank you to everybody listening to the podcast on Apple, Spotify. Please leave ratings. He says, what's the general consensus on the bogey trade situation? So Amari, I think you'd have a little more insight to this. My opinion is, I think I'm leaning into just keeping bogey, Amari. I think I want to keep him around. A lot of the guys we've talked about today aren't great shooters at least from day one Hendricks is I think Cam is going to be the other four there's some questions around I think Bogey is a nice piece to keep around because of that and I really like what the Pistons are going to have available at 31 so I, I don't necessarily love the idea anymore of trading Bogey to get another first round pick I could be talked into it but that's just my opinion yeah I just think Bogey is one of Detroit's best trade pieces like obviously very productive last season and his game today is pretty well I mean I don't know if you have like a steep fall off and his contract is making around 20 million a year uh so he's just you know he's like probably the only player on the roster who is not only extremely valuable and could help the team win now but also is on a big enough contract where if you need to make numbers match um you can do that with him just because of his salary so you know i don't think again like i you know, I reported all through the trade deadline that they're looking at keeping Bully and Alec Burks. It's like a really big deal for them to come off of that. Um, you know, again, now, I mean, I think if the deal makes sense, you do it. But I don't think they're going into the offseason with the mindset of we have to trade Bogey. We have to get what we can for him now. 
Um, I mean, he was really good for him last season. I know there was a question earlier, like if they trade Whit, if they take Whitworth, do you trade Bogey? You need wings that can shoot. Like you just need wings that can shoot. Like it's not either or situation for any wing they bring in who can shoot with Bogey. Uh, you can have both play him however many minutes you need. Like that's fine. It's not an either or situation. And I don't think you go into this offseason with the intention that you have to trade him. I think you still need that skill set on the roster next season. All right, let's call our shot, Amari. This is solely what we think is going to happen on Thursday. This is our last chance to talk about the draft before the draft actually happens. This is it for me and you. On Thursday, when the night is over, we're not going to do pick 31 because there's so many potential guys there. Let's just do pick number five. Not what you want to do, not what you would do, anything like that. You have to take into account what you think Houston's going to do at four. Who do the Pistons select at five? I'm still going to stick with Cam Whitmore. You know, it's tough. I'll say right now, I don't know with 100% certainty. Yeah, somebody asked me earlier, like, who would you put money on? Nobody. Don't don't put your money on the pick. <laughs> Save your money. Put it in the – never you were going to bet on the fifth pick. Put it into a high savings account and just, and just watch the – the growth of the next year. Don't bet on the fifth pick. Uh, I was still going with Cam Whitmore. You know, I think around the league, he is widely considered to be of all the players outside of like that top three. It's like him and Amen are the two who are like, maybe they could really uh, make teams regret not valuing them higher down the road. You know, I still think Amen probably goes to Houston because they need a long-term solution at point guard. And even if they get James Harden this offseason, which is a TBD, you still need a point guard. James Harden is going to be 34 next season, so that's not a long-term solution. Like, you still need somebody who could come up in the wings. And and just the Jalen Green, um, and Thompson backward would just be insane from an athletic standpoint. So, assuming he goes four, I still think Cam Whitmore's a pick up five. I'm going to stick with what I said earlier. I just have this gut feeling that it's Jairus Walker, and I think it's Jairus Walker essentially no matter what. If they take Cam at four, I think it's Jairus Walker. If they take a minute four, I think it's Jairus Walker. Maybe, maybe there's a, a small trade back and still take Jairus Walker. But I think the Pistons walk out of the draft with Jairus Walker. I would take Cam Whitmore. I, I have Cam in a min, essentially in a different tier at this point than the other six guys. But Omari predicting Cam Whitmore. I'm predicting Jairus Walker. Sorry, Jared Beck, my bad. So we appreciate you guys tuning in. Remember, we will go live on Friday morning. Tune in with us then, and then the podcast will drop a little bit later that day. If you can't join us live, always up on YouTube later on throughout the rest of the day. Then we'll be back every Tuesday moving forward, including in a couple weeks, me and Omari will be live and in person from Las Vegas. We'll figure out which hotel room has the best Wi-Fi and we'll join you guys from Summer League. Wes, thank you. Everybody listening and watching right now, thank you. If you're listening on Apple, Spotify, wherever, thank you so much. Again, leave a rating, review, anything you can to help us grow throughout all of this. We enjoy it so much. We appreciate you guys. Marty, take it away, my guy. Yes, as always, big thanks to Ajdet Delgado, Kirkman Crawford, and Robin Chen, our audio producer, and big shout out to Wes Davenport. And we'll talk to you also.